Okay, now I'm a minute late. So First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, and we will start with verse 13, but let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you for what uh, we learned from it about the advance of the gospel in these early years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, we thank you for the example of these early believers, and we thank you for the things that we learn in, in your word about um, what we should believe and how we should behave, and we pray that you would help us to learn from all of this as we study it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as I said, we're in 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, we will start in verse 13. So last, um, last Sunday in the text that we talked about, um, Paul engaged in a defense of his ministry. Um, and he will continue to do that in what we read today, but there's a little bit of a shift in emphasis in the what we studied last week. There was some discussion of his love for the Thessalonians or some indication of his love for the people of the church with an emphasis on the defense of his ministry among them. We will have a little bit of a shift today, and so it will be a return to the theme of uh, predominantly of his love for the Thessalonians, but in, intermingled with that um, is a continued defense of his ministry. So the same two subjects, but a little bit different um, in which predominates. Um, the other thing that you'll notice today, and we'll read the text in just a second, but um, um, Paul uses some of the harshest language that he uses in any of his epistles with regard to those that had rejected the gospel and who were persecuting the church. Um, so we'll, we'll get to talk about that as well. But part of what he's doing here is these that were persecuting the church were saying, Paul doesn't really love you. He's just been uh, out to get something from you. And so there's a sharp contrast here where Paul says, no, I really do love you. And in contrast, these are people that are trying to destroy your souls. So um, it, it's an interesting uh, passage. So chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It is not you. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And so I think you kind of see all those themes that we, we talked about uh, just a moment ago. So the, the first part of the passage deals with what I'm calling the reception, uh, the reception of the word of God. And you'll, you'll notice here that Paul returns to language that he actually used in the opening of the epistle or, in the, or the opening chapter of the epistle. So um, in verse 13, he says, for, um, 
um, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, which corresponds to chapter 1 and verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And so you see the similarity in language that Paul returns to. And then again, in chapter 1 and in verse 6, we had the theme of imitation, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, uh, which is repeated in um, chapter 2 and verse 14 here, um, where he says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So the, the, the language has returned back to what he has used earlier, and it's almost as though what Paul has done here is he, he opened the letter, uh, like many Presbyterian ministers, he chased a couple of rabbits, and now he's returning back to the language um, that, he, um, that he used in the opening, because it's almost like he's returning to what he expected the flow of the, of the letter to be. And so actually, that also makes sense when we realize that uh, if we had read on into chapter 3, he gives the occasion that caused him to write the letter. He had sent Timothy to find out how the church was doing. Timothy had returned and given his report, and that's what caused Paul to write First Thessalonians. And so, in some senses, it's almost as though um, the, the end of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 are kind of an interruption as, as Paul, as he was dictating the letter, had these other thoughts. He went down that road. And now he's returned to the path of the original letter. This is the way Paul writes. Um, I don't know if I should say this or not, but I will anyway. Um, Paul's theology is Reformed theology. Paul was a Calvinist, right? Um, Paul's writing style and the personality that comes through with it reminds me of Luther. Um, and maybe that's a bad thing to say, but, you know, Luther... Luther had this dynamic, energetic um, um, personality and style. Luther was also, Calvin is known to be the greater scholar and, and almost certainly was, but Luther was no lightweight, but he had this energetic style about him that often was good, it made him interesting, and sometimes it got him into trouble. But uh, you kind of see that with Paul's writing style. He just this sometimes uh, in the midst of writing brilliant doctrine and analysis of what was going on, he also uh, comes through with this energetic writing. Um, you see this in Ephesians, where um, Ephesians uh, verses, three, one, uh, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 uh, was actually all one sentence, and it's been compared to a snowball cascading down a hill and building um, in the same way, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which in our English translations gets divided up into three or four sentences so we can make sense of it. When Paul wrote it, he wrote chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 as one sentence. Um, and, and so it's, it's one very long, for the most part, grammatically correct sentence. Uh, we think it's grammatically correct. But, but anyway, you see this exuberance, this excitement, this energy in Paul's writing style and, and so in, in First Thessalonians, I think we see kind of the same thing. He started his letter. Some themes have come to mind. Um, he's gone down that path, and now he's, he's returned to the way that he started out. So we see the, the reiteration of these terms. He 
uh, says, I, I constantly um, thank God for this. You are imitators. We're, we're back to these ideas. So in, in terms of his, um, his constantly thanking God for them, uh, this time he refers to thanking God for the way that they received the word. So look at verse 13 again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. So he commends them that they received the preached word that they had heard. And it's important to realize here that when he's talking about them receiving the word of God, that he's talking about them receiving the preached word. When they received uh, the word of God, they didn't receive it as the word of men, but they received it as the word of God itself. This is consistent, again, with what Paul writes elsewhere. And so um, in Romans chapter 10, he says, um, how would you believe if there were not preachers? And so, and he, then he says, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so both in Romans 10 there, and in 1 Thessalonians 2, we see Paul talking about the preached word of God as a means of grace by which God works in the hearts of those who believe. So, for you remember, or, uh, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. It was not just Paul and, Bar- and Silas and Timothy preaching, not as just the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. And so receiving the word of God was not just a matter of taking in information. Certainly the, the preacher, the minister, shares information with us. It's not just empty platitudes or, or sayings. There's, there's information that's shared. But when we hear preaching, we are not just taking in information, but additionally, it is God that is work, at work in us, creating faith in our hearts and causing us to grow and believe in our faith. And so... Um, Paul says that in the preaching of the word, God is at work and he is producing something in you. And so you were right um, to receive the preached word, not as the words of men, but as the word of God. Now this has a lot of practical applications for those of us that are hearers of the word. So let's stop and think about um, some of the applications um, for a minute. Um, First of all, for preaching to be authoritative, for it to be the word of God like Paul is describing, there has to be an intimate connection between the written word and the preached word. So if you're listening to the radio or if you're going to another church or something and you see this disconnect, um between what is being preached and what is written, then you might want to think, well, maybe I should just take this to be the words of men. Uh, For it to be the word of God preached, there has to be a 
connection, a deep and profound connection between what is being spoken and what is written in, in God's Word. Um, there's a prominent um, evangelical minister nowadays, I guess he's still referred to as evangelical, so I'll call him that, but he makes a, uh, makes a, a, a great deal of the idea that it's not necessary, he says, to refer to Scripture in a sermon. And actually, I've heard a sermon by him in which he makes fun of the idea of, oh, we're near the end of the sermon. I've not had a, I've not had a Bible text yet. I better throw one in so you'll think it's a sermon. And so he openly, openly mocks the idea and says it's only a tradition that um, causes us uh, to think that Scripture has to be used for it to be a sermon. And I, you know, I have not called him by name, you may know, may or may not know who I'm referring to, but um, that's not biblical preaching and that's not the Word of God preached when, um, when the Word of God is... Now, you know, and what we tend to like in our confessional Presbyterian circles is expository preaching where a text is exposed and, and I, I would agree that that's the best form of preaching, but whether it's expository or whether it's topical that looks across multiple passages of scripture um, when we're listening to the word we ought to see that connection between the written word of God and the word of God as it's preached and um, if we don't sense that connection then we might want to say to ourselves this is really not the preached word of God am I being too harsh or is that all fair everybody thinks it's fair okay good you're not listening um, <laughs> um, so I think that's um, I, I think that that's one thing that sh should be drawn from this passage. Another thing, along with that, is it's important that not only do we use the Bible uh, or that ministers use the Bible in preaching, but it's and, and I know that nobody in this room is a, a minister, so I'm not saying this so you'll preach the right way. But I'm thinking of us, um, not just in this church, but I mean we're all. Um, we're all consumers, if you will, of preaching, Bible teaching that we hear on the radio or we visit other churches or we go out of town or someday we'll move away and, and have to find a church. So it's in that context that I'm talking about this. Um, but um, it, it's important that not only that the minister use the Bible, but it's important that the minister use the Bible to develop themes that are biblical themes. Um, you'll hear some preaching that um, approaches Bible texts like they're using Bartlett's familiar quotations. And so they'll find the use of a word that um, fits what they're wanting to use. I visited a church one time, and the, the minister, um, you'll forgive me for visiting this church, I hope, but the minister was making a smoothie um, for his sermon, which was about blended families. And so he said, blended families need power. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. See? And so this is, this is not an appropriate way of using Scripture. Um, when you use Scripture in that way, um, you're not, um, it's not the authoritative preached Word of God. And so um, it's important to... Um, to, to think about that. Ed Clowney, who used to be president of Westminster uh, Seminary in Philadelphia, um, made a statement that really uh, 
affected the way that I listened to preaching. Um, he said that um, that when a minister is completing a sermon, that he should ask the question, did, did Christ have to die for this sermon to be true? And what Clowney suggested, that if the answer is no, then the sermon requires rework. And that's really an interesting way of thinking about the fact that not only must we use the Bible, but we must use the Bible to develop biblical themes and, and understand the history of redemption as it is, um, is taught through the Bible. So um, the Bible has to be used. Biblical themes have to be developed. The, 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 another application that I think comes from this is that when we listen to preaching, we can't listen to preaching with the idea that, well, I'll take it or leave it. Yeah, I, I like that, so yeah, I'll, um, I'll try to do something with that, try to apply it to my life. Uh, I don't want to do that. I don't, I'll, I'll ignore that section of the sermon because, you know, Joe quit preaching and went to meddling, so I, I'm not going to do that. I can't, and we can't, appro approach preaching like that. If preaching is the spoken word of God, like Paul describes it here, that means, and it's the means of grace that the Spirit uses to create faith in my heart, that means that I can't take it or leave it. I have to listen to it and uh, take it as God speaking to me through his word. And so it's important for uh, those of us that are hearing preaching to have an appropriate submissiveness to the preached word of God. And so that's um, something that I think that we should take from this passage. That's not to say that when we listen to preaching, and I hope that this has been demonstrated by some of the other things I've said, it doesn't mean that when we're listening to preaching that we should be undiscerning. The very best of preachers occasionally get things wrong, and the really and the bad preachers get a lot of things wrong. <laughs> so when we're listening to preaching, we certainly are not under an obligation to think that whatever is said is true. Um, we are to be discerning listeners, um, but discerning listeners, being a discerning listener, is not the same thing as being a critical listener. So we're not listening for the purpose of finding fault or disagreeing or for saying, I'm not going to do that because I don't like it. Uh, but rather we submit to the word of God, even while we try to make sure that what we are hearing is consistent um, with what we uh, know of the word of God. I... That is so important, and I love that you said that because that was exactly what, where, we were, where we were headed. Because the other thought here is that now some of what we've been talking about is in the context of what we hear on the radio or when we visit other churches. But also within the context of our own church, this is the reason why confessional Presbyterians place so much importance on who gets to stand there. We have a session that um, has uh, the, the biblical responsibility for making sure that the word that is preached here by our pastor when he is on vacation or can't be here by visiting speakers. You know, there, there are other sorts of churches that 
almost anybody can stand in the pulpit regardless of their qualifications or what they believe or or the types of life that they've lived. Uh, almost anybody can stand behind a pulpit. In our confessional churches, we think that it's important that the session protect the purity of the church and make sure that anybody that stands there is going to bring to us um, the Word of God. And so that is very much uh, such an important concept. We, again, even the very best of preachers aren't perfect. Um, the very best will get some things wrong. But we ought to be able to come and sit in the congregation on Sunday and understand that the minister who is preaching to us believes uh, the Word of God, believes things that are consistent with our confession of faith, and that they are um, under God going to do the best to their ability by the uh, help of the Holy Spirit to bring to us God's spoken Word. It's so important. And um, non-confessional churches don't have that benefit. And it's something that we should be thankful for. It's, um, it's a discipline that our form of government provides that is very important to our um, spiritual nurture. Other thoughts? such an important point. And, and, and this brings up the issue of, you know, we, we tend to take the offices of holy elder and deacon as for, eh, as compared to the guy who's standing up there. Uh, we're going to be uh, voting on a, on a deacon today. Hopefully you folks have talked to him and have asked him these type of questions because even though it's a deacon, he, he, he has to subscribe to the Whisper Standards just like I do and, and Joe does. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's not a hierarchical situation as far as our officers are concerned. It's just a difference in gifts. But uh, John, you can go, you need to talk to John <laughs> and, or, and, and the other elders uh, to make sure, you know, it's one thing to sit there and, you know, I'm sitting here, but. Uh, I can talk to talk, go walk to walk, that sort of thing. Uh, do I really know? And you know, does Joe really know? Or, or, or any of us? Yeah, it's, really it, and that, that's so important. And, and it, it should be noted that in, in this kind of exercise by the session, it's both a, a, a negative in the sense of correcting thing that, and possibly disciplining, but it's also a very positive thing. So Wayne and... and um, Oh, good gracious. <laughs> Terry. Terry from New Bronzeville. Wayne and Terry are here. So suppose I say something that um, in this class, not as a minister, but teaching a Sunday school class, which is a, a, a significant role. Um, suppose I say something that they think is outside our uh, beliefs. Um, they may not interrupt me and tackle me during the class, uh, give it your best shot, guys. But, <laughs> but, 
but they might um, say, can we talk later? We think you got this wrong. And so then we, we would sit down, and if I did get it wrong, it would, a couple of things could happen. Either, either I could explain myself and say, oh, that's what you meant. Or I could, you know, well, I just got disorganized again because that's who I am. I'm like Paul. <laughs> um, I'd like to think that. Um, so, I, or they could talk and I could say, oh, yeah, I need to fix that. I, I'm sorry. So, you know, lots of different outcomes can come from that, but it, it's an important that, you know, um, certainly our pastor is accountable within the session, but others of us that provide uh, are in different roles, such as teaching a Sunday school class, have that kind of accountability as well as in support. So, um, listening to Wayne, I agree with everything that he I have been in a church where it has come to this day where deacons have been placed before the church for confirmation, and I have had members get up and question the deacon about their beliefs and as they're being confirmed when they've already gone through the vetting process. That man shouldn't even be standing before us if he isn't going to hold to what our church I even, it even went so far as they asked the wives if they were okay with that. Hmm. And then... <laughs> it was sort of a test of verifying. But during that time, that to me was just so inappropriate. Absolutely. So when, when, during, the, during the, the congregation meeting this afternoon, John's name will be presented as coming to the congregation as a recommendation from the session. So we, we have done that. What was it? Five hours we were with John. <laughs> yeah, so we, we spent the, a little bit of time with John several weeks ago. Months ago, we had six weeks ago. I mean, I, to me as a member, I, not that I know the best intimately at all by any means, but I know John's character just from the little bit of time that we've been here. And I will place my trust in the session. I would never start interrogating. Well, I wouldn't say it'd be an interrogation. You just talk to him about you know, what does he believe. You know, it, it, this, is a, this is a calling uh, to be a dick on that one. Oh, I understand. And uh, we're asking you to vote on it. And, and that's one of the few things that, uh, you know, within our system of government, congregation actually gets involved with. So, you know, I'm just saying, you know, Take advantage of, uh, you know, do, you know. I do it before the yeah, gentleman yeah. is standing before him. Well, yeah, and, and, and that, that's sort of what I would get at is, you know, when uh, when he was announced, you know, hey, John, what do you think of this section or that section? Or, you know, so you get to know and understand, uh, you know, because he's just as responsible for you all as we are as the session. And if he has, he's going to be judged, you know, as it says in scriptures, as somebody who's responsible, uh, you know, it just doesn't hurt. You know, I, I don't take offense at it, and I, I would certainly would do it too if uh, if I was if I was just a member of the congregation, not an elder, just to find out. Okay, he's being nominated, he's being elected. What do I know about him? Uh, especially if you know something that we don't know. 
Yeah, and I think both of you are making extremely important points. Um, the session certainly does have um, a responsibility with regard to um, who is presented to the church. I think it's also significant, and, and certainly there can be questioning once we um, realize that, that John is being uh, presented as a nominee for, for uh, the diaconate. But it's important, as you kind of mentioned, you, you know his character. You know, we're, we're not in a situation where the session is presenting somebody to the church that joined the church three months ago, which happens in places. You know, um, you know the, the New Testament, war, Paul warns, and I think it's in First Timothy, where he says, don't um, ordain a novice. Um, you know, and, and there are, there are um, traditions where they do that. You know, somebody uh, is converted, uh, they're excited, and they're exciting. And so, oh, you ought to, you ought to preach, uh, or you ought to be a deacon, or you ought to be a leader, or you ought to teach class. And so people get rushed into situations that they aren't ready for. But as you point out, um, John's been a member here for a long time. You've uh, seen him, you've talked to him, and so... Um, um, we may get more focused when we realize, oh, this person may be a deacon, but nonetheless, we're also relying on the fact that this is somebody that we've rubbed elbows with for, for a number of years. Uh, did you have a question? I think I... And certainly with regard to other um, traditions, um, we ought to be thankful that the Word of God is preached by um, folks that, are, that see things differently than, than us. And as you pointed out, we ought to be deeply concerned when there are deviations from the Word of God in, in those other traditions. So um, we don't want to be overly critical and ignore the fact that the Word is preached um, by other groups and denominations, but on the other hand, we ought to be grieved when, when the word is not preached. Other thoughts? Um, so we've seen the reception um, of the word. Um, and then Paul moves from there into contrasting the, the reception of the word by, um, by the believers um, with the, um, the rejection of the word by those who did not believe. 
And he makes this transition in his reference to the, um, to the Thessalonian believers as imitators. Uh, when, we think that he, when we think of him talking about imitators, we think, well, he's going to talk about that you know, morally they were changed by the gospel, and no doubt that was true. But in this passage, you'll notice that his focus on imitation is not with um, the, ch- their, the change in their lives, but it's rather in the fact that they were persecuted. So in verse 14, he says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things that your own country, uh, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so they were imitators not in that their moral lives were changed, though, again, no doubt that was true, but they were imitators in that, just like the Christians in Jerusalem had suffered, these Christians in Thessalonica were suffering, just like in Jerusalem they were suffering at the hands of their own countrymen, their own friends and neighbors and relations. Um, In Thessalonica, in the same way, they were suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. And so you see um, the, the deep affliction that would have been caused by this persecution, not only because it would have been a, a physical hardship if they uh, were imprisoned like Paul was, or if they lost jobs or places in their community, but also there would have been a sense of personal betrayal in that it was their own countrymen that were the ones that were now um, persecuting them. And so the, the emphasis is upon um, the, um, the imitation in suffering. Now with this, Paul, this is the first time that Paul writes in his epistles of a theme that is very important to him. The Thessalonian believers are united with, and the Thessalonian church was predominantly Gentile. But they were united with their brothers and sisters in the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. And so they, uh, they were imitators, they were brothers, they were fellow Christians. And so there's this focus on the one church being just like the other. You were an imitator, you were, you were a mimic of the churches that are in Jerusalem. And so this is a theme that Paul will develop in other places. Uh, Ephesians 2, very predominantly, where Paul uh, talks about the, the Gentile believers that at one time you were aliens from the tribes of Israel and uh, strangers from the covenants of promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. But now the middle wall of partition between you has been broken down by the cross of Christ, and so Jew and Gentile have been brought together into one body um, and so um, and one temple. Um, so Paul develops this more in Ephesians 2, but as the apostle to the Gentiles, it's the theme that you see here also, that Gentile Christians are united by Christ in imitation of the Judean churches And so there's not a Gentile church versus a Jewish church, but there's one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I started to say one church of Christ, but that's the one across the street. Um, There's one church of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles. Um, In Revelation, we see the one church united in heaven being of all 
people in tribes and kindreds and tongues and nations, there's one church with all of us belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a crucial theme for Paul's missionary activity in his day. And we should say that in our day of balkanized ethnic groups, this is an important theme that there's one church of the Lord Jesus and whatever it is that divides us from people that uh, are different than us, whether ethnically or socially, socially, socioeconomically or where we came from or what our political beliefs are, I brought that up again. Um, all these, whatever our differences, what we share in common in Christ makes us able to unite together in one body because we all belong to Jesus Christ. It's an important theme and it's what Paul is, um, is bringing into the background as he emphasizes um, that you are imitators. In this instance, um, imitators in persecution, but nonetheless, you know, he could have he could have said you're imitators of the Philippian church. They had suffered over there too. But Paul had a reason of wanting to connect them to uh, the Judean churches because the Thessalonian church, the Thessalonian Christians are united with the Judean churches, Gentile and Jew united together because we are all one in Christ. And so as Christ's body, we are suffering together. And so there's a reason that he uh, related it back to, um, to Jerusalem and Judea um, to emphasize the unity of Christ's body, um, in this instance, by their joint suffering. Thoughts or questions about that? Um, here, Paul describes um, particularly the Jews that had rejected Christ in very harsh terms. And so I think we should deal with this uh, quickly, and then we may pull the, we may put off the uh, part um, regarding the second coming to next week. But in terms of the rejection, this is some of the harshest language in Paul's epistle. So um, at the end of uh, verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is very strong language, and some have suggested that the language is anti-Semitic, so I just want to take a minute um, to deal with that. First of all, to say that, it, that Paul is being anti-Semitic would, um, would contradict everything that we just said for, regarding the reason for Paul doing this. He's actually saying that Jews and Gentiles belong into the same, in the same church. And so he's not rejecting Jews, um, but rather he's bringing Jews and Gentiles together. But there's some other things that we should realize here. First of all, um, the, the emphasis and the reason that Paul speaks in this way is it's a comparison to rejection by countrymen. The Judean Christians had been rejected by the Jews there, and the Thessalonian Christians had been rejected by the people of Thessalonica. And so there's a, a comparison of being uh, related to being, um, to being rejected by your own countrymen. Um, another thing to keep in mind with regard to this passage is that 
Paul, not to state the obvious, but Paul himself was Jewish. Um, and um, actually, not only was he Jewish, but he had been one of the persecutors. So before his conversion, Paul was in Jerusalem and had um, been at the stoning of Stephen, had uh, consented to it, and then was given uh, documents that allowed him to leave Jerusalem and go to other places to make sure that uh, Jews that accepted Christ in other locations would uh, be persecuted according to whatever laws he was able to use. And so Paul himself not only was Jewish, but he had been one of the persecutors. And so in the background of this, no doubt Paul is remembering that I was one of them, and yet Christ has loved me and drawn me into his church. Um, another thing to keep in mind from this passage is that Paul is not laying these accusations at the hands of all Jews. So in Jerusalem, those that had been responsible for the deaths of the prophets, those that had been uh, that had consented to and been, had responsibility for the uh, execution of Christ, those that were persecuting the church, that wasn't all Jewish people. It was some of them. Because in Jerusalem, who were the Christians? They were Jewish. They were all Jews. So on both sides, it was Jews. And so when, when Paul use, here uses the term, the Jews, it could be taken in just the general sense that we may be inclined to initially read it. But actually, Paul is using this as a ter technical term. He's not talking about the Jews as in all Jewish people, but rather he's speaking of the Jews as in the leaders who were responsible for these things that I'm describing. And so it's a technical term um, because there is a differentiation between the Jews that rejected Christ and those that received him, all of whom were in Jerusalem. And so he's not speaking of all of them, but of the leaders that had rejected Christ. Um, the, um, the reproach of these leaders is understandable given that their rejection of the Messiah and their dogged efforts to oppose the spread of the gospel meant that people would not hear the gospel and would not be saved. And so they were, their ongoing opposition to the gospel and to Christ meant the eternal damnation of those that would not hear and receive the gospel. And so it's understandable that Paul would speak so harshly. Um, the end of Christ's opponents is so certain that Paul describes it in the past tense. And so he closes this section by saying, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And so he speaks of the judgment of these people as though it's already occurred, when in fact it yet um, at that time awaited the future. And so um, Paul here has harsh terms for those that oppose the gospel and who are um, persecuting the church so that people will not be saved um, but it's understandable when it means the eternal damnation of those who will not hear the gospel. Um, next week we will talk about verses 17 through 20, um, which concerns um, a return, not only the hoped-for return by Paul, but the return of Christ. And then we will dig into chapter 3. But um, questions, comments, thoughts as we close down? So... Yes, 
Um, so the temple was destroyed around AD 70. This would have been written about uh, AD 51, so nearly 20 years before. Others? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We uh, pray that this has been beneficial to us in our own Christian lives, and we pray that you will prepare us as we uh, enter into worship in a few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.